Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, September the 2nd, and we're doing back-to-back shows on what it means for young people, uh, young people who have migrated to the United States, what it means to be an American uh, or what it doesn't mean to be an American. In an hour's time, I'm having a conversation with uh, a young man, Michael Saman, a Peruvian Bolivian American mobile application entrepreneur. He has a new book out called App Kid, how a child of immigrants grabbed a piece of the American dream. At least he didn't talk about the American pie. But a piece of the American dream is an interesting notion, a metaphor, or perhaps something quite literal. Uh, today, uh, we are talking with Javier Zamora, who also has, I think, something interesting to say about uh, the American dream, if it exists. Some of you will be familiar with Javier's uh, first book of poetry, Unaccompanied, and he has a new book out, uh, a memoir. Uh, Solito, um, which is coming out next week. And I thought we might begin uh, with uh, Javier. We're talking to him from uh, his in his home, his new home in Tucson, Arizona. Javier, uh, this idea, you don't use the term American dream or grabbing a piece of it in your book, Solito, but what's your sense of an American dream? Does it still exist? Is it a notion that we should uh, get beyond? Um, I think it's certainly a notion uh, that we need to evolve from. In my own experience, the dream, knowing it as a child growing in rural El Salvador in the 90s, the American dream to me was watching Full House and Baywatch and a lot of American TV. So when I, my parents paid somebody to bring me to this country, I was expecting that type of image, meaning that I was expecting that my parents lived in the full house house or something like it. But when I got here, a lot of my experience is similar to the experience that the other members of my family who have migrated and other immigrants who I know and who have become friends is that we are disenchanted with this idea that we have and bring with us once we make it to this country. And then the reality of how this country treats immigrants for the most part. And so to me, um, on paper, you might say that because of my uh, CV that I am living the American dream, but I just want to remind people that I am the exception and not the rule that some like immigrating across the border and then having a book out doesn't mean that the American dream exists. It actually proves that is that it's a rare thing. I like your choice, or I'm intrigued, um, Javier, with your ch- choice of the word disenchantment, a word I think invented by the German sociologist Max Faber. But before we get to disenchantment, Let's hear your story 
which you outline in Salito. Uh, as you say, it's an exceptional story, a story that will resonate, I think, with our audience. It's exceptional and yet also all too familiar. So, so what's your story? What's the story you tell in Salito? Um, so in Salito, I tell my immigration story from the point of view of my nine-year-old self. When I was one, about to turn two, my dad flees the country in 1991 in the midst of the Salvadoran civil war. He is one of close to a million Salvadorans who fled, and most of them fled to the United States. My mom flees in 1995 when I was five, so I remember her. I did not remember my dad. I stay in contact with them via phones, letters, cassette tapes. And the book begins with me asking to come and rejoin them because I love my parents and I just, I have no idea what the trip entails. I just know that it's a trip. This is a child who had only left his rural home less than seven times to go to the Capitol and go to the supermarket, go and have Pizza Hut or McDonald's, which I've had one to two times each when I was in El Salvador. And to me, uh, that's what I was expecting here. And then my parents paid the same smuggler that brought my mom here. And so he was a trusted individual. My mom makes it here in less than two weeks and it's relatively safe. And I use quotation marks because it was still a horrifying trip in hindsight. And after, you know, we're adults and I've talked to my mom about her own trip, but she makes it here fast. And the coyote, the smuggler, promises my parents that he's going to be with me, accompanying me throughout the entire way like he did with my mom. But that does not happen. The trip turns out to be two months and not two weeks. He leaves the group of seven of us. Um, then it, that group falls to six people. And then once we make it to the U.S.-Mexico border, it shrinks again to four people. And this is just my telling of day by day, moment by moment of how myself as a child perceived the world and perceived or did not perceive the dangers that I was around. You also edited uh, a book, you were a contributor to a book, Unaccompanied Migrant Children. Um, how typical was your experience, Javier? Uh, I assume that many thousands, probably tens of thousands of kids went through the nightmare that you went through. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, and I think this is a reason why I finally had the courage to write my story in prose because I published this book of poems unaccompanied in 2017. And that was the year when Americans, the general American, seemed to first learn that there were children migrating across the border, a lot of whom were and are unaccompanied immigrants. And as an unaccompanied migrant myself who immigrated in the 90s, and as you learn in the book that I was Um, 
this has been occurring since the since the 80s it angered me and, and just to see the coverage and the innocence with which the average american approached this um this influx or this quote unquote crisis when to me it was just an everyday thing and as we're speaking today last year uh there's something like a hundred and thousand or a hundred thousand children unaccompanied children who are still immigrating and doing that trip so this is it's almost like a normal a, no, a weird normal that has been occurring is happening and i think it's going to continue to occur as you say uh javier solito is written uh from the point of view of a, a nine-year-old of course you're no longer nine but you imagine you are we did a show a couple of years ago with an Albanian philosopher, political philosopher, uh, Leah Upi. She has a new book out, Free, like yours. It's been very well reviewed. Um, uh, and she writes about growing up in Enver Hodges, Albania, a very odd place, uh, as a 12 or 13-year-old girl. What do you think writing as a nine-year-old brings to your narrative that you couldn't have brought as a 30-year-old? It's a great question. Um, the decision to tell my story in the present tense, I think came out of going back to the, to the child immigrant crisis. We as journalists, as writers, as filmmakers, artists, etc. I think we have tried it all. We have tried shocking, very revelatory photographs that were meant to shock the American uh, reader and viewer. It has not worked. Um, we know the statistics. We know that there are people fleeing. We know why they're fleeing. And yet nothing seems to be working. And I started writing this book because I got this fellowship or at Harvard in order to conduct research and finish my second book of poems that was supposed to address this uh, Central American child crisis in which I looked at every single mention of Central American refugee children from April 2017 to April 2018. And for the most part, if I myself are an immigrant and I've had it with the immigration coverage, if I am veering away from that coverage, what is the average American who is not an immigrant themselves doing? In my opinion, we have disregarded the coverage because it's mostly adults speaking. And so here I am, I think it's harder to ignore a child telling you what they went through than it is to ignore an adult. And I hope that in that telling, in including the reader in the psyche that I went through and that I very much, I'm still traumatized by and that I still remember that maybe, maybe the readers are gonna really see immigrants as full human beings. Because the book also doesn't only cover the, the shocking violence or terrible moments, but I also included the everyday life, which you do find joy, even in the worst day of your life, 
there are some things that you can attach to and distill moments of happiness from. And I think a story like this is what is needed, a child to be heard. The book is called Solito, a memoir, but in an odd way, Javier, doubly, it's not really the traditional memoir. Firstly, most people write memoirs to somehow celebrate their life and talk about themselves. Uh, from reading the book and talking to you, I don't get the sense you're particularly interested in that. Your goal is to write a polemic, to wake people up, and you're using your nine-year-old self to do that. And of course, it's a memoir of a nine-year-old. Now you're in your 30s. It's very hard to remember what it's like to be a nine-year-old, even when you're in your 30s. Uh, so I'm assuming that this term a memoir is used with a degree of skepticism or perhaps even irony in the book? It is and it's not. I think what my aim in trusting my memories and trusting my trauma, you know, I couldn't have written this book without having therapy. And my wife is also a Reiki practitioner. And for listeners who don't know what Reiki is, it's kind of something like acupuncture in which um, there's no needles, uh, there's just hand movement and it's supposed to clear the energy passageways in your body. And for victims of trauma, we have a lot of blocks. And so all of this helps move the trauma out. For most of my time that I've lived in the United States, which is from the ages of nine, Till I was 29, I'm 32 now. When I was, I was not ready to truly look at the eight weeks that I describe in Solito. For the most part, it was because I couldn't travel. I didn't have a green card. I now have a green card and I have gone and done the research. I live in the borderlands now, which is something that I couldn't have done uh, before I turned 28. Um, and for the last three years in the writing of this book, I have learned to trust my dreams. I have learned to trust the aches in my body. Um, I get eye migraines, which is a rare case when I feel stressed out. I go blind on my right eye. And I've read um, a bestseller book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. And reading that book really revealed to me that my body absolutely remembers what it went through those nine weeks that I was immigrating from El Salvador to the United States in which I almost died several times. Um, and I call it a memoir, even though it's written, I think the biggest praise that you can give the book is that if you acknowledge that it's kind of written like a novel, um, because it's how I remember it. It's how these scenes are cemented in my body. So a lot of the scenes in this book just flushed out once with the help of Reiki and with the help of my therapist, well, professionals, both of them, that I could, they could really hold me. And that's, I'm talking about in a literal way, hold me as I broke down, as I was meant to, and I wanted to, and was ready to remember these very difficult passages in my life. And, and so memoir, is important that it's on there because I'm honoring the trauma and what the trauma has done to me mentally and physically in order for the readers and for myself to relive and to reread and to really analyze 
that trauma and how it has affected me, continues to affect me, and will continue to affect me for the rest of my life. You talk, uh, Javier, about reading your dreams. It's not the American dream we talked about mm -hmm. at the beginning, a dream, a false dream sold on television. Um, but you live in America now, and some of your work and your thinking, I know, is focused on coming to terms with this country, of making sense of it as your home. Uh, you wrote a piece from 2018 in the New York Times. I have a green card now, but am I welcome? You write about going up to the Russian River. Well, actually, I know that rather well. I used to live there. You drove past a house with a Confederate flag flying over it. Obviously, there's a degree of ambivalence, to say the least. What's your feeling about living in America now? Um, in terms of reading your dreams uh, and everything you've gone through since this terrible trip? Um, I think in that piece and to this day and having the ability to, a green card gave me the ability to return to my country, El Salvador. And I returned during what seems to be an everlasting violent phase in the history of my country. And staying there, the most I've stayed since I got my green card is six weeks. And I guess the closest thing to a dream that America has provided to me is the feeling of safety. Um, and then I say that as a tongue in cheek because brown and black people are more statistically in danger in this country than they are in other countries as well. So I'm not completely safe here, um, but there is at least an allure or, or a facade of safety that in my country, that's, there's not even a facade of such. You're always fearing, or at least where I live in, in my section of the country, which, you know, I am not rich. I do not live in the capital. My family didn't grow up in the capital in El Salvador. Um, we live in an MS-13 controlled city, um, town. And, and so that is the closest thing I have to thank this country for, which is this allure or, or facade of safety. But also, and I think people continue to immigrate to this country because for the most part, if we are comparing Central America and the United States, it is still hard to ascend or transcend economic the economic ladder in this country. But I believe that it's even harder, exponentially harder to do that in our countries back home. And this is, this is not, I'm not forgiving the United States, but it is easier if we are comparing countries. And so those two things have helped me feel slightly bit safer had I stayed in El Salvador and also given me access to education, even though for most of my time in this country, I have been undocumented, but I had the privilege and the luck to grow up in the Bay Area that 
as more accepting than other counties and areas of the United States towards undocumented people. And, and so from then on, you know, I've, I've had a lot of luck in my stay in this country. If someone who had less luck than you in a way was Erica Sanchez. Uh, she's not first generation, second generation immigrant. She grew up in a suburb of Chicago. She, she was on the show recently and she has a new book out, Crying in the Bathroom, uh, which talks like Julissa Arce about not wanting to assimilate. Julissa has a new book out, You Sound Like a White Girl. To me, it seems as if you and um, Erica and Julissa, you're part of a, a new generation of immigrants to the United States. Do you feel part of that generation? Do you think that in 50 or 100 years, we'll be talking about this wave of immigration that brings vitality and energy and irreverence to this country? Hopefully. Um, I think we are in a moment when a lot of Latinos, you know, I, I like to remind people that Latinx people are not a race, it's an ethnicity. And whiteness and the closeness to whiteness is still very alluring. And you can throw the word assimilation into that. And a lot of conversations regarding, you know, immigration and assimilation put as an example, Italian Americans or Irish Americans in this country. Look, look at what happened to the Italians or the Irish. They're part of America. They're American as apple pie now. And we hope uh, multiple times people have told me, oh, it's, that's just happening to Latinos in this moment. In like 50 years, you're going to be part of America. And I think part of that sentence in that conversation, a requirement of such is assimilation. And as you mentioned, mm. Erica, Julissa, and I are telling people that you shouldn't assimilate and that it's okay being who you are. You do not have to reject where you come from in order to be accepted in this country. You can just be yourself. And is the United States going to eventually get to that point? Hopefully, with the politics right now, I don't think so. Um, now yeah, we've, you talked have... a lot of, um, we've talked a ton about the, those politics, uh, uh, Javier. Um, and uh, we had conversations, for example, uh, with Dahlia with Lithwick this week and... Uh, um, the New York Times, uh, the, the Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank, and they all talk about this mythical date, 2045, when there'll no longer be a white majority in America. Are you looking forward to that date, 2045? The, the symbolic date. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's going to happen exactly in 2045. Um, I mean, I how old will you be in 2045? You'll be, uh, 55. You'll be in your late 40s. Yeah, I'll be 55. Um, and I am waiting. Uh, I think the conservatives in this country have known about that date for a long time. And I think they are doing everything to keep that from happening. 
Um, and we will see. Um, again, I think I would like to, I think the role of the writer and the artist is to talking about dreams again, to dream a world that we don't have and a world that, but a world that we deserve. And I think we deserve in a world where anybody could be who they want to be. And it doesn't matter um, their sexuality, what gender they are, um, what color they are, where they come from, if they were born in this country or not. I think that is the ask that my generation is asking for. Whether we're gonna get there, I can only continue to voice my hopes and dreams and see where that gets us. Javier, what wisdom did your nine-year-old self bring to what Levi Vonk, uh, a journalist who spent some time on the border in Mexico, uh, made for the moral case for demilitarizing the southern border? Vonk wrote a book with Axel Kirshner called Border Hacker, a tale of treachery, trafficking, and two friends on the run. Uh, Axel went through the same thing you went through, only he was an adult. Do, is the fix here simply opening the border up or at least demilitarizing it? Um, I am not a politician. I don't think that politicians even know what they're doing. But yes, uh, dismantling the border patrol, opening up the borders is just the beginning of how things could change. I also do think that we have to address and the corruption in our homeland, meaning Central America and Latin America. My country in this present day of age, I can tell you that our president is super corrupt. Every president that we've had since the civil war has stolen millions and that is a fact and you can look it up. And I know that this president is also stealing millions, especially through Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, and so the, the, I can't even say that word, <laughs> the demilitarization of the border is just the beginning. But yes, it is a very important beginning. It's interesting you make the point about um, El Salvador. We had the global development expert on poverty, in particular global poverty, Charlie Robertson on the show. His focus is Africa rather than Central or Latin America. But he believes that the cure to global poverty is, is more education and more electricity. And that in itself will address the crisis of immigration. Do you agree with Robertson? It's a lot of things. But yes, um, I see it as addressing corruption, real corruption. And we're along with corruption, we I'm throwing in the drug trade, which Central America, it's a huge stoppage point. And I could tell you that the Mexican state, the Salvadoran state, the Guatemalan government are in part in cahoots with the drug trade. And that is the beginning. Uh, electricity, access to water will become and is already a big fight in a lot of Latin American countries, access to land. Um, the There's a huge mining um, exportation and drilling that is going on in Latin America, like it always has. 
but that money is not going back to the countries. So there's a lot. And if you don't have water, if you don't have electricity, it is very hard for you to, to really get something out of education. So that would be my, my critique that, you know, yes, electricity and education, but if you don't have electricity, you don't have one and the other. And if you don't have water and you don't have safety, then people are still going to immigrate. Thinking about your memoir, Javier, reminded me of another guest I had on the show recently, Usman Umar, uh, a, a very young African male who made the trek north. He wrote about it in North to Paradise, a memoir like yours. Do you think that there's a need to kind of universalize your story and Umar's story? It's the story of the early 21st century, the story of young people like yourselves seeking better lives because of the problems with your homes. Do you do you think of, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you, you're even, you'd heard of Usman before, but do you think of guys like him as being essentially African brothers to, to what you've been through? Um, there's another writer, Jose Antonio Vargas, who, um, this is three years ago. In his calculations, there are 300 million, 300 million um displaced people, meaning immigrants who have left their homelands for the quote-unquote um, developed world, meaning Europe and the United States. That's 300 million. And that number is going to continue to grow. And we are seeing the beginnings of, of it in books and movies about the same thing. Um, is not, it doesn't have to be the U.S.-Mexico border. It could be crossing the Sahara. It could be crossing um, the Mediterranean Sea. It's also uh, people from the Philippines going and working in, in the Middle East. You know, there's a huge movement of people, and that is only going to continue to increase. So, yes, um, I like Jose, how Antonio, Jose Antonio Vargas put it, because we are a country as big, if not bigger than the United States, who is in constant mobility. And that figure is, gonna, is just gonna continue to increase, especially because of climate change and because of wars, because of said climate change. And yeah, so in short, yes, we, we are part of the same drive from quote unquote, uh, undeveloped countries to quote unquote, developed ones. Yeah, so those 300 million people need a literature. I think your new book, Salito, it's out next week. A memoir will be a very important piece of it. It's already getting some incredible reviews. Sandra Cisneros wrote, perhaps only a poet could invoke the fear and beauty of a migrant's voyage. A witness who lived the story is essential to gain credibility. A child is necessary to summon compassion. This is the mythic journey of our era told by a hero not old enough to tie his shoes, an oracle for our troubled time. I have waited decades for a memoir like Salito. I think we all have. And uh, congratulations, uh, Javier, on that. Uh, the book's out next week. You're doing a big book tour. And I'm thrilled that you're also going to be at the Miami Book Fair. They've helped me get you. Um, uh, that will be November 13th through 20th in Miami. Um, and lots of online stuff before that. If you want to check out uh, miamibookfaironline.com, we're going to be doing a number of other interviews with uh, guests at the Miami Book Fair, including Stacey Schiff, 
and the author of Race and Reckoning, Ellis Coase, in the next month or two. So we're thrilled with that. Thanks again, Miami. Uh, and thank you, Javier, for a great interview. This is uh, the great miracle of technology, at least second time <laughs> round. Uh, it's always better the second time around, Javier. Uh, what right. else are, are you reading? Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, you're very busy reading other people's work as well as your own. Uh, Solito's about to come out. Uh, other people will know you from uh, Unaccompanied. Who are your favorite writers these days? Who would you advise our, our viewers to read? Um, first off, thank you for having me uh, on here. And um, there's this book uh, from a Bay Area-based writer, is The Man Who Could Move Clouds yeah. by Ingrid Rojas Contreras which is a memoir, kind of memoir in quotations, but it's important that it's called a memoir and it's about her family of shamans that she comes from in Colombia. And she's an immigrant herself. She immigrated here when she was 18 and it's a great read. And there's also a forthcoming book uh, in February 28th that's gonna come out from Hogarth, which is also my publisher of um, Solito. And, and this is, for those that you can see, that's the cover and the Christine title. Rivera, the title. Yeah. Yeah. Cristina Rivera Garza. And the name is Liliana's Invincible Summer. And rarely do I cry when I read. And this book had me in tears. So please look forward to it. And it is something that everybody should read.